Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway in Portland, Maine. We'd love to have you join us for worship Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., currently on Zoom and broadcast live on Facebook. Visit our website at hopegateway.com to learn more. Whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. got all kinds of help today. Thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. Good morning, Hope Gateway. My name is Diane McClanahan. I am the community care coordinator here at Hope Gateway. My personal pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, So I want to start with just a, a brief story about our daughter, Katie. When she was about three or four years old, she was in a preschool gymnastics class. And every week on the way to the gym, we would pass by this house that had this giant satellite dish sitting, is it up there? Yep, (laughs) sitting in the front yard. And Katie would say to me, Mommy, what's that? And every week I would try to explain what that was. And I would tell her that, Katie, this is called a dish. And what it does is it helps people to have television. And that's the best I could do. And so week after week, she would ask the same question, Mommy, what's that? And week after week, I would do the same explanation until one day she surprised me. Instead of asking me what it was, she said, Mommy, I know what that is. (laughs) And I said, what is it, Katie? Expecting my standard answer to come back at me. And she said, Mommy, that's a dish. That makes television sets go flying through the air into people's living rooms. (laughs) Hold that thought. We'll get back to it. (laughs) So in our current sermon series, we've been looking at the question, what good is faith? The first week, Sarah introduced the series with an invitation to push past the exhaustion that we all uh, might be feeling, as Peter did when he cast his net one more time and it was full to overflowing. And then last week, Alan shared a message on awe, wonder, and imagination. Have you been awed this week? I have. I've been paying attention. So this week, I've been asked to share some thoughts on two words, actually, mystery and humility. Hmm. So those two words, mystery and humility, for them, my my go-to book really is the book of Job. So I thought we might tackle that story today. It's a tough one. Um, Job provides some poetic texts like the one on the mystery of, like this one on the mystery of God. So just read that. Do you think you can explain the mystery of God? Do you think you can diagram God Almighty? God is far higher than you can imagine, far deeper than you can comprehend, stretching farther than Earth's horizons, far wider than the endless ocean. And then there's this one. This one touches the theme of humility. What are mortals, anyway, that you bother with them, that you even give them the time of day, that you check up on them every morning, looking in on them to see how they're doing? You might notice I'm using a very contemporary text. It's Eugene Peterson's The Message, and I love the story through his interpretive mind. So Job is one of three books in the Bible. Um, uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are the other two that together are called wisdom literature. 
these three books deal with the human condition, and they seek to find answers for some of those unanswerable questions that plague us all. In the book of Job, the authors, and there's, there's likely more than one of them, tell a story that attempts to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And how is it that an all-powerful and all-loving God allows human beings to suffer? We might add, for the sake of our sermon series, what good is faith anyway, especially in the midst of suffering and struggle and pain? So the book of Job is this long story, one big long story, um, some prose in the beginning and the end, a lot of poetry in the middle. And in the, in the opening, we learn that Job is a man of faith right off the bat. We're told that he's a man of faith, totally devoted to God and blameless. God delights in Job, so much so that one day, when all the heavenly beings have come to report to God, God calls over one of them, the Satan, and says, have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil. The Satan, translated the accuser, who, by the way, is not the devil that shows up that you know, we think about in our popular culture, because that figure doesn't exist, really, in, in Hebrew uh, in, during the time of this writing. Um, but that character acts like a heavenly district attorney and challenges God, right? It, just like a district attorney would, you know, we're going to give you an opposite viewpoint here, and he's doing um, a different sort of assessment of, God, of Job's faithfulness. He says, so do you think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet. Make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. You bless everything he does. He can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face. That's what he'd do. Well, God accepts the Satan's challenge and allows Job to lose his wealth, his children, his livestock, his servants, and eventually his health. And I won't get into the gory details of that, but it's not a pretty picture. And Job is downright miserable. Still, true to form, Job's faith does not waver. Even when his wife tells him to just get it over with and curse God and die, Job blesses God and offers some amazing statements of faith, some of them quite familiar. You might have heard them. Naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I'll return to the womb of the earth. God gives, God takes, God's name be ever praised. Hmm. We take the good days and the bad from God. Why not? Why not? And then there's this, this one, a little longer. This kind of shows where Job is really at. God alienated my family from me. Everyone who knows me avoids me. My relatives and friends have all left. House guests, guests forget I ever existed, and my wife can't stand to be around me anymore. I'm repulsive to my family. Everyone I've ever been close to abhors me. My dearest loved ones reject me. I'm nothing but a bag of bones. My life hangs by a thread. Still. 
I know that God lives, the one who gives me back my life, and eventually God will take God's stand on earth. Wow. I know that God lives. If you know the words of Handel's Messiah, you'll recognize that one better in the King James Version. I know that my Redeemer liveth. You know that music? What an amazing statement in the midst of so much loss and so much pain. Job doesn't curse God. God wins the challenge. The Satan loses. But poor Job, it's all at his expense, isn't it? In the midst of his struggle, three of Job's friends show up, and later a fourth come, and they are, they're there to uh, comfort, comfort him. At least that's what they start out doing. They're so distressed when they see the situation he's in that they cry out and lament, they rip their clothes, they pour dirt over their heads in grief, and then they sit with Job in silence for seven days and seven nights. They should have quit right there. Silence alone would have been a gift. But instead, one by one and over and over again, they each take several turns, they open their mouths and try to convince Job that the proper response from him to all his suffering is repentance. You see, the common wisdom of the day was that suffering came as a result of sin, and I still think some people feel that today. You reap what you sow. That's that kind of theology. So if Job was suffering all this loss, his friends believe that he must have angered God by doing some pretty terrible sinning, right? Job's friends think they can fix Job if only he'll listen to them. So they have a lot of advice. They know the answers to his trouble. They insist over and over and over again that Job should welcome God's discipline as a wake-up call so that he can repent and be restored to right relationship with God and then God will reward him and restore his life. And so we read the book as insiders, don't we? We know that his friends are dead wrong. From the opening lines of the book, We've already read that Job is blameless. He's a righteous man. He doesn't deserve his suffering. Job knows better, too. He doesn't buy his friend's arguments against him. No matter how hard they try to convince him that he deserves exactly what he's getting, and they do this for more than 34 chapters. <laughs> okay, this goes on and on and on. Job refuses to perjure himself by admitting he's done anything wrong. Believe me, I'm blameless, he says. I don't understand what's going on. I hate my life. Since either way, it ends up the same, I can only conclude that God destroys the good right along with the bad. When Job's friends tell him that this vain pretense of innocence he is doing is only making things worse, he gets more and more upset with them. He rejects their, in the words of Eugene Peterson, their pious bluster and stock religious answers because they think they have all the answers about God. They think they have God all figured out. And you know what I mean, don't you? We, we face that sometimes too. You've probably heard cliches and platitudes yourself at one time or another. The God doesn't give you anything you can't handle kind of stuff. Or in Job's case, the God doesn't give you anything you don't deserve kind of stuff. 
But eventually, Job is so fed up, he says to his friends, I've had it with you. I love this. I have to read it to you. Um, I've had it with you. I'm going directly to God. You graffiti my life with lies. You're a bunch of pompous quacks. <laughs> I wish you'd shut your mouths. Silence is your only claim to wisdom. Listen, now while I make my case, consider my side of things for a change. Or are you going to keep on lying to do God a service? Do, do you keep making up stories to get God off the hook? Throughout the book of Job, Job cries out in, against the injustice of his situation. And over and over and over again, he asks what most people ask in the face of severe suffering. He asks, why? Why didn't I die at birth? My, my breath, first breath out of, my womb, out of the womb, my last. Why do the righteous suffer while the wicked get off scot-free, eventually going to their graves with everyone telling lies about how wonderful they are? Why do you, God, stay hidden and silent? Eventually, the nature of Job's questions shift if you really listen carefully. And they go from the why to the where. He has a complaint, and he wants to bring it directly to God. So he begins to ask, where are you, God? What a good model for all of us who suffer, shifting from the why am I suffering to the question, where is God in my suffering? Job looks north, south, east, and west, and God appears to be absent. And then one day, out of a whirlwind, God shows up. Where were you, God asks, when I created the universe? And then a whole two-page chapter of amazing monologue with God spelling out God's creative interaction with all things great and small, the earth, the stars, the oceans, ostriches, wild donkeys, horses, hawks, and on and on and on. And with all that, Job's bravado falls away. I'm speechless, in awe. Words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and to listen. And then the story comes to a fairly abrupt ending. Job is exonerated. His friends are chastised for not being honest like he was. Job's health is restored, and he ends up with new children and more wealth than he ever had before. But does this fairy tale ending really satisfy us? What about all the children Job lost? He lost 10 of them. Don't they matter? And what about all those why questions we never get answered? We're still left wondering why the innocent suffer and the wicked don't seem to be held accountable, aren't we? And does God really allow human suffering just to test our faithfulness? That's not a theology I can embrace. And after all this, we've got more questions than we had in the beginning. And perhaps that's the point. We don't have the answers. The more we know, the more we know that we don't know. And in the end, we're like my daughter, Katie, wondering how television sets go flying through the air into people's living rooms, right? <clears throat> when we even begin to think we have a handle on the mystery of the universe, new images come through on the Hubble telescope, as they did just last month 
we are confounded. We're humbled by all that's out there. We are humbled by God. And yet time and time again, God chooses to be revealed in a whirlwind, in a burning bush, in a pillar of fire by night, in a cloud by day, in a still small voice, in the cry of a baby, on Christmas morning, in a brilliant transfigured Christ, in tongues of fire and gusts of wind, in the beauty of creation, awe-inspiring sunsets, the fluttering of hummingbirds, the tender care received by another, the taste of bread, the sip of wine. And whenever we catch a glimpse of the mystery of God, humans are humbled. Job is silenced. Moses takes off his shoes. Shepherds and magi bow down and worship a baby in a barn. And when Jesus is transfigured, the disciples throw themselves on the ground. Humility actually comes from the Latin word humilitas, which means grounded. In humility, we see our place in the order of things, and when we catch a glimpse of God, we see ourselves in comparison. We recognize that while God chooses to, to dwell within, among, and through us, we are not God. And oh, what a relief that is, right? So what good is faith? It opens us to mystery. It enables us to see our place in the universe. It grounds us. I think Mactilde of Magdeburg gets it right. She was a 13th century Christian mystic whose book, The Flowing Light of the Godhead, was among the first written in Middle Low German. Just think of a 13th century woman writing anything that gets noticed, no less makes it to today, right? And, and no less the first book in, in, in any language while we're at it. So within her book, I want to conclude with two love songs. The first is entitled, To God, The Soul Sings to Divine Love. And she has a hard time figuring out how to name God and uses all kinds of words, right? O burning mountain, O chosen sun, O perfect moon, O fathomless well, O unattainable height, O clearness beyond measure, O wisdom without end, O mercy without limit, O strength beyond resistance, O crowned, beyond all majesty, the humblest thing you created sings your praise. And in response, here's a song from God to the human soul. And so I would like for you to listen, if you would, as if God was speaking this one to you. Oh, you beautiful rose in the thorns. Oh, you fluttering bee in the honey. Oh, you pure dove in your nature. Oh, you beautiful sun in your rising, or you beautiful moon in your standing, I cannot turn away from you. There are so many questions about the ultimate reality that we simply cannot answer. There is no certainty, but faith isn't about certainty, it's about mystery. We walk humbly with a God who is shrouded in mystery. And yet the creator of the universe, who took note of Job and in delight said, look, have you seen my servant Job? Isn't he wonderful? That same God cannot 
does not, will not, turn away from you and from me. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. To hear more about Hope Gateway and to discover how together we can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, visit our website at hopegateway.com.